Okay, where do we get to? We did the UK leg of the tour. Class goes to London in part one. I got my passport in double quick time for the European leg. So that means we're on the ferry to Gothenburg. Hello, I'm Richard Paul Jones, PJ to my friends, and this is All The Jam, a podcast of nonsense from a life lived on the fringes of rock and roll. This is part two of Cat Stevens and the Gentle Ghost, and will make more sense if you've heard part one. The crossing took a lot longer than I imagined, and we had plenty of time to play. Paul decided to entertain some girls from the ship's crew, though to what end was unclear, and why he thought that doing a Mr Gumby impression was his best chance of connecting with them escapes me. But he did it very well, and they did seem to enjoy it, and I still have the photos. If you don't know who Mr Gumby was, Google it. It was dark when we docked at Gothenburg. I had no idea where Gothenburg was, but that wasn't a problem, as I wasn't driving. I just checked it on a map, and it's not as far as I've spent the last 46 years imagining. But the drive to Copenhagen still seemed to take forever. We stopped for petrol at a roadside filling station, and decided coffee and a snack was in order. Sweden, it turned out, was obscenely expensive, and we were relegated to the sandwich section of the menu as we were waiting for our per diems. As far as I know, per diem is one of only two pieces of Latin in common use by touring crew. It refers to a daily payment to buy food when no catering is provided by the management. It's also in cash and difficult to tax, but not so today. Sometime in the 1990s, the revenue looked up from their calculators and saw that the live music business was a hitherto overlooked gold mine and proceeded to raid it. But these were simpler times. The only other Latin phrase I was aware of at the time was status quo. Although a frightfully uncool band in 1974, they were about to become serial chart-toppers, producing an endless stream of heads-down, no-nonsense boogie, and continue to do so to this day. A few months later, I'd be back in Europe, touring with this splendid ensemble. But that's another story. The coffee was as good as the sandwich was not. I'm a bit of a sandwich fan. It may be something to do with living in a squat where kitchen facilities tend to be minimal. A well-made sandwich is an absorbent plate and a balanced meal in one. It leaves little in the way of washing up and is highly portable. Try that with soup or spaghetti. The same cannot be said of the Swedish open sandwich. For a start, it's not a sandwich. I mean, how difficult is it to define one? It's not very, as long as it includes the concept of something edible with bread on each side. That's two bits of bread. This example lacked the crucial second piece. Also, it had a topping, not a filling. And even if I had thought of folding the bread over the topping, it wouldn't have worked, as the bottom layer was not bread in any sensible sandwichy sense. It was a brittle cracker which exploded on contact. I don't remember the actual topping, but I do remember thinking it was extremely unsatisfying. Maybe a bit of lettuce with a sliver of herring or something like that. I do remember it had some sort of totally pointless red embellishment, like that tiny cube of red pepper that some people stuff into an otherwise tedious olive to make it appear more sophisticated. I try to imagine a Swedish truck driver being faced with this decorous piece of frivolity. Somehow I couldn't quite see it hitting the spot. Until, that is, a large truck pulled into the parking lot and the driver came in. And suddenly it all made sense. He was wearing a suit and tie and looked like an accountant. He ordered something at the counter, which turned out to be two so-called sandwiches, and sat down at the table. He had a newspaper that needed folding twice so he could hold it far enough away to focus. 
a newspaper that size would have been considered suspicious in an English greasy spoon, where anything bigger than a tabloid would be seen as a bit iffy. He consumed the two fragile morsels with an admirable degree of dexterity, neither of them exploded, and not a crumb despoiled his attire. It was clear I was in foreign, and they do things differently here. We arrived in Copenhagen the day before the show, which meant that once we had unloaded the truck, we didn't have to reload it until the next day. This was something of a luxury for Paul and me, and after the load-in, we checked into the hotel and kicked our heels until we scooched off to a pre-show welcome party. For the first time in days, I felt halfway human, and got stuck into the beer and looked around for an opportunity for a dalliance. Neither Paul nor I were very subtle. We were both up for whatever distraction presented itself, and at times it became competitive. We may have been seeking an escape from the drudgery of truckloading, a sort of consolation prize, but more likely it was just the excessive hormones of young men amplified by the circumstances of hanging out with celebs and the wannabes that hover around them. This isn't the place to unload all the clichés about Scandinavians. Suffice to say, I found myself talking to a striking girl who, I was amazed to discover, was happy to talk back. She was all eyes and cheekbones, with that sort of hair that hangs over one eye without looking goth. I've no idea why she was there, and was taken completely by delighted surprise when she invited me back to her place. Not wishing to appear rude, or to give her the chance to change her mind, I grabbed my jacket, told Paul I was off, and nodded in her direction with the insouciance of someone who has just won a gold star. He grumpily muttered something about me having pulled a hooker, and I thought, well, if he's right, one of us is in for a serious disappointment. As an aside, that was the first time someone thought a girl I went home with was a hooker. The second time is another story for another day. She drove us across town to her small apartment in Kastrup, it was neat and tidy, and probably the most modern place I'd ever been in. It was full of light wood in a variety of geometric shapes, and white metal in sensual curves. Neutral fabrics abounded, and there were splashes of primary coloured objects scattered around. Everything would be familiar to anyone who has ever been to Ikea, but Ikea would not open in England for another 13 years, which is my excuse for not being sure exactly what some of these things were. Of course, they turned out to be a selection of lamps, storage units, one of those kneeler chairs, and a whole host of household gadgets and decor unknown to the savages of Albion. It seemed the future had already arrived in Denmark. We passed a pleasant few hours, and when I woke in the morning, she had gone. I found a note on the kitchen table saying that she had to take her son to kindergarten. Where he'd been overnight was not apparent. Maybe one of the storage unit things was in fact a nursery and she'd left me a ten-kroner note for a cab back to the city, and said she'd see me that evening. Some hooker, I thought. We met up briefly at the venue, but she had to go back to the future, and her son, and I had a truck to load. I can't remember if I gave her ten-kroner back. I do hope so. My passport tells me we left Denmark the next day, heading for Frankfurt, with me folded up in the back of the car, wondering how easy it was to find work and live in Denmark which in my limited experience was the most friendly place on the planet. The only thing I remember about Frankfurt is an after-show party at a club with too many floors, very narrow stairways and a very efficient heating system. In deference to the preponderance of US military bases in the area, the toilet was called a restroom and was in the basement. 
Then, as now, it's the place for all sorts of recreational activities unrelated to its primary function. So it was not unusual to find a small social scene developing in and around it, and I was not surprised to find the small restroom congested. On closer inspection, the congestion was caused by something wedged between the sink and the wall. The something turned out to be our keyboard player, who, it is fair to say, was not petite. One of the security crew was trying to get him to stand up and out into the street for some fresh air. He asked me to help, explaining that he thought the ivory tickler had been overcome by the heat. Between us we pushed and shoved, and slowly managed to move his almost dead weight up the stairs with bugger all help from him. We couldn't get past him, and someone else must have joined in the effort and pulled from the top, as I don't think the two of us could have done it all alone from below. We got him to the street, and above the noise of the traffic, I could clearly hear my lower back plaintively asking why I hated it so much, especially at a time when my continued employment relied on my ability to carry heavy stuff. I had no good answer, and just begged for its forgiveness. After the Frankfurt show, we headed to Paris. Having finished my part of the load-in, I was sitting in the balcony watching the crew down below setting up for the sound check. I was thinking how much I hated unloading trucks, and was just about to start thinking how much I hated loading them, which I would follow with some speculation about how the hell I could get a better job without any particular skill set, when I was joined by a mass of hair topping off a black satin jacket, black trousers and some very expensive looking black boots. The ensemble screamed, rock and roll dude! A message confirmed when he turned away to reveal what I took to be a band's logo, mostly obscured by his hair, and below it the words, World Tour. He had a beautifully stitched leather bag slung over his shoulder, from which he withdrew a Polaroid camera. It wasn't one of the big lumps of black plastic that looked like an orthopaedic shoe, but one of the slim, brushed, stainless steel jobs with tan leather inlay that pops open at the push of a button. Well, of course it was. If he'd been any more cool and casual, he would have floated off in a cloud of dry ice and landed serenely in the stalls. After looking around and taking a few pictures, he sat down a respectful one empty seat away from me and said, All right. Hey, I thought, he's human. Yeah, I replied. He asked, You with the band? Yeah, just having a bit of a break. What are you up to? I'm advancing a tour, checking the venues. You know, don't want any last-minute cock-ups. Turns out he was visiting venues in advance of a forthcoming tour of some mega band whose name I forget. Maybe Genesis, Jethro Tull, Yes, or Led Zeppelin, who were all traipsing around the world at the time. The job involved making sure the lighting rig and the set would get through the doors and fit on the stage, and taking reference photos to back it up. God, I thought, was there no end to this casual coolness? To add to the picture, and my increasing sense of the futility of my life, he mentioned in passing that he had just flown in from Italy and had to fly to Spain later that day, and didn't I agree that flying was just so boring. I looked down at the stage and thought, you want to try getting that lot on an Arctic in the pouring rain with fuck all help, mate, but just said, uh, yeah. I imagined a life of casual coolness, flying around the world, taking pictures of stages and measuring doorways, and thought, I could do that. I had to wait 16 years to get anywhere close to this peak of occupational perfection, but that's another story for another time. Before the Euro, touring Europe could involve changing currencies every day. After a while, it became a little difficult to remember where you were and what le currency du jour was. Money became known as things, and after Paris and the French thing, we headed to Rome and the Italian thing, a.k.a. 
the lira. I didn't really need much in the way of cash due to the long days and the fact that catering and accommodation were included in the deal and someone else usually picked up the tab in the hotel bar and after most shows the record company dragged poor old Steve off to a glad hand some locals and the crew were usually welcome to tag along. But it was good to have some change for snacks while travelling and little treats at petrol stops to break the boredom. I changed a few quid and was handed a bunch of notes with more zeros than seemed decent. It turned out that the exchange rate was around 1,500 to the pound, but then a coffee cost several hundred liras, so not exactly a bargain. The Italians have a visceral relationship with cash, which they prefer to any other form of payment, with the possible exception of a debt of honour. Many things are priced down to the last lira, despite the smallest note being a 50. So if something costs just short of a round number, you'd get change up to the nearest 50, and then the shopkeeper would reach into a jar by the till and bung you a handful of small sweets. Despite all attempts to dispose of these nasty little balls of sugar, some always seemed to find their way into my pockets, and by the time we left Italy, I had fluff and other small items securely glued to the inside of my jacket by the dissolving confections. All rather annoying. Every time I reached for something, I ended up with slightly sticky fingers, and was reminded of P.G. Woodhouse's brilliant description of something which is mildly annoying as being like marmalade behind the knee. If that idea doesn't convey the feeling of a small annoyance, just try it. A light dab of marmalade in the crease so that the skin sticks together and peels apart with each step should do the trick. Jam would probably work as well, but my researches have not gone that far. So if you find yourself with time to kill, a selection of conserves and an inquiring mind, try them out and let me know. But I digress. The European gigs were a short leg of the tour, just four shows, and Rome was the last date. The venue was a sports stadium, and the load-in was very easy as the truck could reverse right up to the stage and everything could just be wheeled out with ease. During the sound check, I was asked to go to the hotel to collect something someone had forgotten. It just so happened that the publicist was also going and was using the only available transport, Steve's limo. Well, he wasn't using it, so it made sense, and a ride in a limo made for a satisfying distraction. Kids today get limos to their school proms and later to stag and hen parties and the like, but back then they were rare and usually meant someone rich and or famous was inside. We collected the whatever it was that had been forgotten and headed back to the stadium. As we approached, the place was crawling with police and a number of water cannon with mesh over the windows were lined up in the car park. I thought we might have inadvertently arrived at the wrong venue, maybe an exhibition hall, hosting a riot control equipment sales convention. But then I saw our truck and the unmistakable signs of early audience arrivals, mainly girls clutching albums for signing and looking hopelessly cheerful. We pulled off the road and were suddenly surrounded by a small herd of enthusiastic optimists, all scrambling to get a look at the man they'd come to see and maybe get an autograph. We thought discretion the better option and sat back behind the dark windows and heard the ominous click as the driver locked the doors. My second taste of mistaken celebrity. Back in the stadium, it was hard to avoid the sight of uniformed police dragging heavy-duty crowd management barriers around the auditorium and dozens more police with helmets and shields backstage. I was beginning to suspect this might not be what I would consider a typical Cat Stevens audience. After a while they started to drift in. 
it was clear that the need to subsidise the ticket price with alcohol sales might account for the pessimistic preparations. But it was a bit odd, though. This wasn't a football crowd, and there's no obvious opposition to fight. Surely a few small beers before the show wouldn't raise passions to the point of pugilism. But on closer inspection, I noticed that the only drinks on sale were miniature spirits. I assumed that the thinking was that selling alcohol in small amounts would limit intake. The audience had seen through this wily ruse and simply bought a lot of them. The support act was Linda Lewis. In the days before rolling risers became commonplace, support acts had to squeeze onto whatever space was left in front of the stage by the headline act. They would also only have access to a small selection of the lights so as to save the full effect for the band that would have paid for them. This is fair enough, but sometimes the support act gets a rough deal. My memory says that Linda had a fair crack on this leg of the tour, though I'm told she suffered when they got to the States. Some 30 years later, she played the jazz stage at Glastonbury, where I was working. She ended the set with the appallingly named, but great-sounding, Rock-a-doodle-doo, which was also in her set in 74. I was on the backstage ramp as she came off and said something like, That was great. I haven't heard it since the Cat Stevens tour in 74. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure she gave me the sort of look that suggests it's probably best to be careful when alluding to a woman's pedigree. Whatever, she didn't invite me back to the dressing room to chew over old times. At the end of the Cat Stevens set, the audience enthusiastically called for an encore and got one. Then they wanted another and they got that. Then they wanted another which was not forthcoming. So they did what any well-brought-up audience would do and threw about 10,000 empty miniature bottles at the crew who were trying to clear the stage of anything fragile. After removing the guitars and covering the keyboards, the most fragile things left were the crew, so we retired backstage in time to see the riot police preparing to flush the enemy out of the stadium so they could drench them with the water cannon in the car park. Well, if nothing else, it would take their minds off another encore. When Paul and I got back to the hotel, the end of this bit of the tour party was firmly established as the crew did their best to sabotage themselves before next day's return to London and the band and entourage did likewise prior to flying to the States. There was much self-indulgence and not a little naughtiness with some guests who didn't seem to have homes to go to. On the 600-mile drive back to London, the car had the feel of a nightclub in the light of day. That's to say, it stunk of stale beer the carpets were sticky, and the people inside solemnly resolved never to drink again. It seems that the night before, one of the guests had been promised a lift to London in our car by someone of little honour. She was loud and incomprehensible, and was not conducive to the sense of tranquillity that would make the journey bearable, and only made it as far as the Trevi Fountain before being dropped off. We went on our way with the echoes of her voluble disappointment fading in the distance, it was the end of a four-week jaunt which had started with my standing naked and dripping on a carpet and ended up in a similar way, but over which I shall draw a veil for the protection of the innocent. It's fair to say it was a life-changing episode from a simpler time and lives on in my memory like a benign and ethereal spectre, if you like, a gentle ghost. And on that tortured construct, I'll put the jam jar away and see what nonsense I can recall for next time. Meanwhile, take care. Look after yourself and look after your friends.